Hello, this is Spotlight on France. I'm Alison Hurd. And I'm Sarah Elzis. Coming up, women's world football finals are on here in France, but there's another world championship in France this week of the woolly kind. We go to the World Sheep Shearing Championship in central France. Also, why it's still really important in France to get your spelling right. But first, the heat wave in France is over, and though it's still hot, the focus is now on the damage. It's still too early to evaluate how many people died because of the heat last week, but it's believed to be in the hundreds of people, not the thousands, as was the case in the previous major heat wave in 2003, which caught France unprepared. The hottest ever temperature in France, though 45.9 degrees, was recorded in the Gare region in the south on June 28th last week. That's also a big wine growing area, and wine growers say their grapes were badly burned, so much that they said it looked like a blowtorch was taken to the plants. Some lost all of their vines. The Minister of Agriculture is in the Gau today, Friday, to assess the damage, and he's promised financial compensation. It's not just vines. Fruit and poultry farmers have also suffered. Overall, 1,000 hectares were lost in the region because of the heat. Climate change is clearly part of the problem. Three weeks earlier, on June 7th in Bézier, just an hour's drive away from the Gare, the temperature was just 7 degrees. That's a 38-degree difference. Scientists say that these extremes is the new norm. But environmentalists warn that while France is good at putting out fires, it still hasn't done enough to tackle the causes of global warming. The country will have to prepare better, plant more trees, increase water points, use more eco-friendly building materials, put in place policies that reduce carbon emissions. While some farmers are reeling from the heat, others are protesting against the free trade deal between the EU and the South American trading bloc known as Mercosur. The deal was agreed last week after no less than 20 years of negotiations. It'll open up Europe's economy to Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay, particularly the meat sector, allowing some 99,000 tonnes of South American beef into Europe at reduced tariffs. Now on Tuesday, French beef farmers protested in front of some 40 government officers across the country. They say the deal threatens their livelihoods because they have higher production costs and cannot compete with South American farmers. While the French President Emmanuel Macron has welcomed concessions from his Brazilian counterpart Yair Bolsonaro over respecting climate goals, Macron's agriculture minister Didier Guillaume said he would not be the minister who sacrificed French agriculture to the international trade agreement. There'll be plenty of opportunity for discussion about all of this. The deal has to be ratified by all the member states, the European Parliament and 40 national governments. That will all take several months and that's a long time in politics. France has become the 56th country in the world to officially outlaw spanking children. On Tuesday, Parliament unanimously agreed to outlaw all educational ordinary violence, as they called it, that parents might hand out to their offspring. The legal code now includes the phrase, parental authority must be exerted without physical or psychological violence. That'll be read out during marriage ceremonies, and it'll appear on the first page of a child's national health records. Now, the idea that spanking can build character is pretty common in France. A survey by a children's charity found that 85% of parents had spanked or smacked their children. Whether the new law can change that is questionable. It doesn't include sanctions for parents who do it. So how will it be enforced? A report on what's being called educational violence towards kids in France, which is also expected to include recommendations for parents, is to be handed out to Parliament before September the 1st. Will Morris be allowed to keep on crowing that 
is the question. Maurice is a cockerel living near Rochefort in West France whose piercing dawn chorus has infuriated his neighbours. They've sued him for noise pollution. The hearing was held on Thursday. Did Maurice attend? No, he didn't, Sarah. But several other cockerels did in support. The case focuses on two pensioners who complained that the rooster disturbed their peace at their second home on the island of Oléron. The dispute's been going on for more than two years now and what it shows is not so much Maurice's vocal capacity but the rift between different ways of life in France. On the one hand you've got island residents who say they've always kept chickens and then there are those looking for peace and quiet in their second homes. The island of Oléron has 7,000 permanent residents in winter but the population swells to a huge 35,000 in summer. The arguments in Thursday's court hearing focused on whether or not the island could reasonably claim to be rural. The court will hand down its verdict on September the 5th. In the meantime, Morris has become a bit of a local hero. The baccalaureate results are out. Now, the baccalaureate, of course, the BAC, is the exam at the end of high school, secondary school here in France. And it has quite an aura, and everybody gets very nervous around those results. This year, even more so, because the teachers correcting those exams warned they wouldn't be releasing the marks or even correct the exams in protest. Now, what's this all about? Michael Fitzpatrick follows the uh, French press for us and has been looking into this story. Now, Michael, first, what happened in this situation? Well, the results have been coming out, depending on where you live, uh, 700 teachers are on strike as part of their protest against plans by the education minister, Jean-Michel Blanquer, to reform the secondary system. And so they held on to not only the papers, which exist, of course, as unique copies of what the kids actually wrote in the exam, but also the results. So some schools had the results of some of their students, but not of all. In some cases, the uh, heads of those schools decided to release no results whatsoever. So everybody is sort of, you know, biting their fingernails saying, how did I do? Will I have to repeat my last year of high school? Well, how will this affect my uh, well, entrance in university? Lots of nervousness going around. Yeah, the, the minister has proposed a sort of solution, uh, suggesting that the schools would simply calculate the results on the basis of the performance of individual students over the past year. But a legal expert interviewed by the French daily newspaper Liberation says that breaks a fundamental rule. You've got to be tested and corrected on the same basis. So if you pass the exam because you got good marks and I passed the exam because I did well over the year, that's not fair and it breaks the f fundamental Republican law of égalité. Well, there are issues there, of course, but fundamentally these teachers who are correcting the exams, they've decided to take the move to put their foot down, say we're not going to correct them because, you know, walking out on the job at the end of the school year doesn't do much. So this is a pretty big way of making their voices heard. What are they upset about? They're part of a movement which in French is called Blocant Blanquet. Uh, let's block Blanquer. Uh, he's been in the job already for two years, which is long for a French education minister. Uh, he's already begun quite far-reaching reforms in the primary uh, schools, and he now moves his attention to the secondary division. There were changes announced last year, things like revising the baccalaureate exams, reducing the amount of subjects students had to focus on, sure. and already sure. sort of raised uh, some protests. Yeah. He, now now they're going to come into four in September. Yeah. He, he wants to simplify uh, the baccalaureate. In fact, he plans, ironically, given what's happening in France today, he wants to abolish this final school leaving exam and have people evaluated on their performance over their final year. And why does that upset the teachers so much? 
damage. They were using the exam as a way of protesting, but they're not particularly worried about that. What they are worried about are ministerial proposals to try and get certain institutions, educational institutions, in various rural areas where the population has declined to get those institutions amalgamated for more efficiency. But that, of course, worries the people who are currently employed. Are their jobs going to exist in the new super school that he proposes to create. So given that the teachers have been on strike, the baccalaureate results are out as expected. Is this going to have much of an effect? Well, it remains to be seen how um, the new school year will start. It'll be his third year in the job. It could be the start of the strike season in national education. Sarah, how well can you spell? Mm, not very well, to be honest, and there's a reason why I stick to audio. Well, you might be forced to stick to audio for a lot longer because autograph or orthography, that spelling, punctuation and the conjugation of verbs, is a big deal here in France. And if you don't master it, that can really limit your options in life. Why are we talking about this? Well, do you remember the national debate? Yeah, the government was asking French people to comment on different themes to try to respond to some of the yellow vest protests. About 250,000 thousand people replied online that created an enormous body of linguistic data the equivalent of 250 copies of Les Miserables. That's a lot of text. It is. A computer analysis revealed 2.4 million linguistic errors. That's an average of one mistake every five or six sentences. That sounds huge and some of the media coverage was quite alarmist but also a bit judgmental. And my impression is that judging people based on how well they spell is a bit of a French thing. I asked Camille Martinez about this. He's a linguist and he works for Autodidact, the company that analyzed the data and is now using it to improve its own online spelling services. It turns out the vast majority of all those mistakes are not a major cause for concern. The most common mistakes was about the accent. Accent grave, accent aigu, accent circumflex. Accents are these little spelling signs that you put on vowels. About 700,000 of mistakes was a lack of an accent or a wrong accent. And we think that's related to the writing tools, the keyboard. Because on the French keyboard, you have some keys with the French accent, but some of them are not in the middle, they are on the side, and some of them need you to use two keys in order to make an accent vowel. And we think people don't draw the accent because it's too complicated and it makes only little mistakes because you can always understand what the people wrote. The message, they are clear, but they are a little messy. I would say. So what, what are the main conclusions you can draw then? Because it sounds like a huge number of mistakes. It was like a, a mistake every five or six sentences. So it sounds as if the French have a big problem with orthography. But how worried should we be about this information? I'm not worried because I knew French people make many mistakes when they write. But uh, the thing with our study is now we can know how much and what mistakes exactly on a huge corpora, on a huge collection of data. And it's not like we discovered the problem because we knew it existed, but there was a lack of information, what errors and so on. So the media made quite a fuss about it. And some of these stories really were suggesting that it's a disaster. People can't, you know, spell properly anymore. There was a sort of panic. And yet you're quite calm about this. Were you surprised about the way that the story was picked up? 
No, I was not surprised because I know how it works. I know that everybody thinks we have a huge problem with spelling because there are mistakes everywhere. But people who say that, they make mistakes too. I think all French people would gain something saying, okay, we make mistakes, but it's not even a big problem. We can live with that. But no, the fact is they say, oh, he has made a mistake. In the Grand Débat, there are so many mistakes. Do you think that France, compared to other countries that you know, would you say that orthography is much more important here or not? I live in Germany and I've never heard of problems about German spelling. In France, of course, it's a, a bigger problem. They care about, they speak about, you heard about it on TV, on radio. For French spelling on the internet, when someone writes a message with mistakes, then people will argue against him and say what you write is wrong because you make mistakes. People who have a real big problems with French spelling lose their power to write a message because other people will not take it seriously when they read it. So in fact, it's a, it's a social marker then, isn't it? Having a good mastery of the written French language. Yes, language is uh, something related to social norms. It's a social norm itself. So when you don't master it, other people will think they won't have something to do with you. Are there other solutions? You're offering an online solution to help people to improve their spelling. Some people have argued perhaps we should think about simplifying the French language full stop. Do you think perhaps that is the way forward? Is it unnecessarily complicated sometimes and just reinforces the idea that you can master it and then you're an elite or you don't master it and therefore you're riffraff? As a linguist, I know the story of French language and I know that there are some people who try to simplify it and... Most of all, I know that people evolve language itself and it simplifies itself. We do not have to worry about it. It's a question of generations too, because a young generations speak and sometimes write different than other people. And at the end, the language changes. Now, to go back in time. Back to July 5th, 1946, when the bikini made its first appearance in an outdoor fashion show at the Modito Pool in Paris. The bikini was invented by Louis Réard, who wasn't a fashion designer, but a mechanical engineer. He'd taken over his mother's lingerie business near the Folie Bergère in Paris and was making his first attempts at designing clothing, when he noticed that women on beaches in Saint-Tropez were rolling up the edges of their swimsuits to get a better tan. Reducing the size of swimwear suited the times. It was just after the Second World War and there was rationing on material, so the smaller the better. At the time, there was only cotton to work with, not lycra. So things kind of stayed wet, I guess. Réa couldn't find a model willing to wear his skimpy design at the press conference, so he hired the 19-year-old nude dancer Micheline Bernardini from the Casino de Paris. He took the name for the design from the Bikini Atoll, where a few days earlier, the atomic bomb had been tested for the first time. 
time. Now, the bikini didn't take off right away. Catholic Church called it sinful. Much of the public at large thought that the two-piece was too scandalous. And Rayard himself said it revealed everything about a girl except for her mother's maiden name. Very witty. But despite the controversy, some in France admired the so-called naughty girls. French actress Brigitte Bardot helped make the bikini more popular when she was photographed wearing one at the Cannes Film Festival in 1953, and that launched Saint-Tropez as the bikini capital of the world. Now, interestingly, studies show that 85% of all bikinis never actually touch the water. They remain a fashion item. And even if the bikini was invented in France, the French actually prefer to say deux pièces, or two-piece, rather than bikini. So you know it actually could have been called the atome. That was a name coined by fashion designer Jacques Ince who actually designed the very first two-piece a few months before Louise Réal's bikini. Now we've got that straight, let's all go to the beach. Places cannot be separated from their history or what happened there. So in France, you think Paris, it's the Eiffel Tower, or Versailles, you've got Louis XIV, Bordeaux, it's about wine. But not all references are quite so positive, which is the case for the town of Vichy in the centre of France. It's a spa town, but it's perhaps most notorious for having been the seat of the French government during the Second World War, and which collaborated with the Nazi regime. It was known as the Vichy government and was led by Maréchal Pétain. Those who collaborated with the Vichy regime were known as Vichyste, a pejorative term, while residents of the town are called Vichysois. Today the town has a thriving tourist industry, thanks to its thermal baths. There's a lively cultural scene, it's got an opera house, and it hosts a major yearly photography festival called Portraits. Ambroise Tezenas was the artist in residency this year, and he managed to capture what he calls the backstage of the city. But as he told Roslyn Hyams, he's from Paris, and he came with his own assumptions about the town. For French people, Vichy is so much under Vichy. You cannot avoid the fact that, you know, it links to a dark history. You cannot avoid it. It's in your mind. It's in your mind, you know, when you're at school. And it's in your mind ever. And, and it's actually something that people here doesn't want to talk about. And it's the first thing you ask. And this is the first thing I ask when I arrive here. was like, which is the hotel where Pena was staying? But at the same time, nobody really wants to talk about it. And you cannot blame them, because when you are in the city, after a couple of hours, after one or two days, you forgot about it. In 24 hours, I was more thinking about the Vichy as it was before. So this cultural city with this amazing opera, this thermal city, and uh, this amazing chalet built by uh, Napoleon III, and so this, this history, which makes it a cultural, historical city and not so much a Second World War city to me. You've included classical portraits mm. of uh, subjects in Vichy. How did you go about doing that? When uh, the festival offered me to do this, presidents, at the very beginning I was surprised because I said to them, you know, I'm not a portrait photographer. I am more a landscape photographer. But as a photographer and as a landscape photographer, taking pictures of a city is also making a portrait, but a portrait of the city. And it's kind of interesting to also take a portrait of the city, not so much taking picture of people, because, you know, the city is, you know, is a live, long city. It's not just, you know, one inhabitant living here for 40 years. It's like, it's hundreds of years. But... It's not just older women with dogs walking in the park. It also, you know, I met 
uh, people coming from Kosovo who've been moving here 15 years ago and were born here. And, and those people are actually living here, not just as a city of leisure, even if it is, and even in the city of leisure, it means people are working around here. Uh, so it was interesting to link this historical city, but also to put inside just little portraits showing that it's a city of the 21st century. It's not just an historical city. Talking about your work, there's a tremendous um, emphasis on contrast of light and dark, chiaroscuro. Uh, I'm not imagining this, am I? No, you are not. You are not. Now, as a photographer, photography is writing with lights. You know, light is so important. Uh, light could be daylight, light could be nightlight. And I've been taking in my work as a photographer quite a lot of pictures at, at, at night because this city is very cinematographic. And it's interesting to show the Vichy to people who have never been here, but moreover, it's more interesting to show the, the city to people who are actually living here, Vichy Soi. And so I had the chance, and I asked for this, to take picture of the interiors, but also to go in some places at night or to go under, like like this very famous Source des Celestins, where you can actually go there and just you know take water. And the place is amazing when you when you see it on the ground floor. But if you ask, I has to go under. So I went 30 meters under on a long staircase in the tunnel where there is 25 kilometers of tunnels under Vichy. And then you can t picture of this place called Le Lac, like the lake, you know. And people in Vichy have never seen this place. So it was also interesting to show places that everybody can see on the ground floor, but also to go inside, you know, try to sneak in and, and kind of looking at the backstage of the city. French women's football team may be out of the World Cup. They won't be playing the final, but France will be in another championship this weekend, just a different kind. <laughs> Sheep shearing, the world championships called the Golden Shears are held every few years. This year, for the first time, they're in France. It's actually the first time they're held in mainland Europe. Competitors from 34 countries from all continents are gathering this weekend in Le Dora, a small village of 1,700 residents in the heart of French meat country, the Limousin. There are cows and sheep raised here, but the sound of a shearing competition is not like hearing sheep in a pasture. This is the all-nations competition, an elimination round for the women shearers. Six of them are currently up on a stage in a huge covered tent full of spectators. They're bracing sheep between their legs as they use the shears to cut the huge mats of wool off of the animals. This is machine shearing, but there's also blade shearing with handheld scissors. It's a different competition. And all are judged on speed, also technique, how accurate they cut the wool and how well they handle the sheep. There are baas from the sheep coming from stage, but they're drowned out by the announcers. Like any sporting competition, they walk us through the action. Down to the flag. Out the back, flank he goes. He's got down to the flank. Right down to the flank he goes, says the announcer. Down the flank, out the back leg. Down and out the back leg. The next Gabrielle Guibert was eliminated in the women's only round. Outside afterwards, she's panting a bit. Her long hair is up in a bun, coming undone. It's hard work shearing a sheep. She's holding her shearer. It's like a clipper that you might see in a barber shop, but much bigger. The end is like a comb. Her hands are shiny. The sweat of the sheep. When the sheep is um, sweating, um, it's easier 
to cut the wool. So that's why usually we ask for um, owner of ships, a ship owner, to uh, put the ship in a mold to sweat the... Uh, to get them really hot. Yeah, exactly. Hot and uh, sweating. Guibert is 35 years old. She's been shearing sheep for five years, and she does it in the off-season from her other job, welcoming skiers in the Alps during the winter. Her brother taught her how to shear sheep after she'd spent time accompanying him to competitions. There, she'd wipe the wool off the stage. Just like tennis has ball boys, sheep shearing has wool girls. Before uh, starting shearing, I uh, used to come with my brother and see the shearing. And uh, first I uh, used to gather the wool and uh, after I uh, start shearing. And after uh, he said to me, um, uh, if you want, uh, I can uh, teach you uh, how shearing. And I say, uh, oh, you're crazy. And uh, finally, uh, that's what we done. There are not many women in this business in France or internationally. And in this competition, there were 68 women in the open compared to 241 men. In the women's only competition that Guibert was competing in, there were only 35 participants. In the world championship, just four out of the 99 participants are women. It is physical work. You need to wrangle the sheep using your legs mostly because your hands are busy keeping the sheep's skin taut, clipping the wool. But it requires more than strength. There is also a lot of mental. Because when, you're, when your body cannot, it's your mental will say you, uh, you have to go. France has had professional sheep shearers for only about 15 or 20 years. There was shearers, of course, before, but there were farmers doing a bit of shearing during the weekend or just for maybe three weeks a year just to shear the farm close to their farm. And it's quite new to be like a full-time shearer. Loïc Legoni is the son of a sheep shearer from the Lot region in central France. He started shearing at the age of 19. He's 27 today. Professional shearers are independent, he says. They go from farm to farm during the season, spring and summer. I enjoy the, the atmosphere and to be with the farmer and change. Um, we are going on different farm every day, so we, we meet new people all the time and we can travel and as well for the competition. He's been competing since he started shearing, and he's good. He was France's champion last year. I love sport, all the sport, and just I'm a competitive person. I like this. I like to feel the pressure and push myself to the limit. Ligoni's wearing a jersey, like a football jersey. This is a sport, he says. It's different from the day-to-day -day work of shearing sheep on the farms. The competition is a different game. You have to be really, really good on not a big number of sheep. So it's, yeah, it's a different game, but I, I like this. New Zealanders are the best in the world at sheep shearing, and Ligoni spent six seasons in New Zealand learning from the best. There's a lot to learn. It's really, really technical. There was a lot of very small things, like just the way you move your foot or the way you just handle the sheep. There was a lot of really small things. And same with the gear we are using for the, for the comb and the cutter, cut the wool. It's really yeah, technical, the way to grind it, to make sure we'll have a good cut on the wool. There was a lot of technique we can learn in New Zealand. From New Zealand to France, Legoni helped the French delegation put together the bid to host the championships in France this year, and it worked. Now they have to show their shearing to the world. That's it for this week. Spotlight on France was brought to you from the English service of Radio France International, and it was mixed by Nicolas Doro.
And this is our last episode for a few weeks. We'll be taking a summer break. We'll be back with you on September the 13th. In the meantime, you can find our previous episodes from this season on our website, rfienglish.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, why not subscribe to the show or tell us what you think. You can send us an email on spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you in September. Bye-bye.